And open your Bibles to Psalm 119. We'll be reading verses 89 through 112 together. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than the honey in my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. O accept the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. We're going to continue our study in John's Gospel, so if you would, please turn to John chapter 20. So we'll look together this morning at verses 24 to 31. This is our 109th message from John's Gospel. Makes up about two and a half years thus far, and looks like we'll finish it by the end of this year. And then I'll inform you here in a couple weeks of where we'll move from here. But I trust that um, you have grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you've been edified in the truth of our Lord um, through this glorious, awesome gospel, and that you have affixed in your mind the God-man that has taken your faith, I pray and hope, to another level. So let's begin here in verse 24. Where we are now in context is post-resurrection. Our Lord is risen from the dead. Uh, We will see now his third resurrection appearance. The first was to Mary, the second was to the ten disciples, along with the women, most likely, and also along with the other two on the road to Emmaus in that upper room that night, that Sunday night. Thomas was not there. So, verse 24, but Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, 
I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other thought signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Bow with me and as I invite the Lord to guide our time here for the next hour, if you will. Our glorious Lord, we come before you in desperate need. We gather here, Lord, to worship. We gather here, Lord, to grow. We gather here to learn. And yes, Lord, we serve. But we, may we always be mindful that the service that we are in desperate need of is your service to us. So we ask that you would empower me, enable me, anoint me by the Holy Spirit's power to communicate your truth to your people and increase in them another level of faith. And provide for those this morning who do not know you. Provide for them, Lord. Grant them by grace ability to believe. Create in them a new heart. Remove, Lord, their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Cause them, Lord, to be born again from above. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we turn this bass speaker off if it's possible? What we have before us, beloved, is the greatest single confession ever made. My Lord and my God. What a glorious statement of faith. Trust, security, hope, my Lord and my God. You see, beloved, God's gift to those that he saves is a faith that has been enabled to embrace and trust the Word of God. To believe, which is to embrace Christ, who is the Word of God. You see, Thomas struggled with doubt because he didn't understand what Jesus had said about his own death and resurrection. He was also absent from the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them. So that's two common mistakes that can lead to doubt 
for any Christian. The first is a failure to rightly understand the word of God. And the second is forsaking the company of other believers. The neglect of either, beloved, diminishes faith. God's greatest truths are discovered. God's greatest truths are embraced and held by simple faith. Which is a gift of God. And as a man or woman of faith here this morning, you have an understanding of life on this planet. You have an understanding of life in this universe that other, other uh, unbelievers in this world cannot possibly understand. You understand the origin of this universe. You understand who governs this universe. And you understand how it will end. And you as recipients of God's grace to believe, you, you understand and believe according to scripture why you exist. And how you fit into the scheme of this life. All the while growing in grace to know how to invest your life in matters of eternal consequence. But most people throughout time, most people to this very day, haven't been given the ability to understand that which I just described for you. The very things you understand as a believer. If you don't understand those things, then you likely don't know the author of those things, and that is God himself. The truths that God has revealed about his plan, we read just some of them in the opening reading this morning. They're not understood by the world. Because those of the world who don't understand are known as natural men. And natural men cannot receive the things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So the spiritually appraised are not able to comprehend spiritual truths of God because they're spiritually dead. For none of those glorious truths can be known to man without proper knowledge of the cross of Jesus Christ, the centerpiece of time, beloved. They can't begin to grasp and understand the cross work of our Lord Jesus Christ by and through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And that work of Christ 2,000 years ago in their mind is foolishness. For the message of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, is foolishness to who, beloved? To those that are perishing. Listen to the confidence of the psalmist which we read from this morning. Psalm 119.99. I have more insight than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your, O God, precepts. The glorious words of the psalmist there pale in comparison to the knowledge that we have this side of the cross. The mystery revealed through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul penned in Ephesians chapter 3, when, verse 4 says, you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. 
which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's what? Grace. Recipients, the grace of God enfolded into the plan of God. God's elect, saved by grace. The mystery revealed through the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important that we understand, beloved, Jesus Christ came into the world not primarily for the sake of showing us how to live. That's how many people perceive Jesus. Well, he came to show us how to live in this world. Partially true. Jesus Christ came into the world to be rejected. Jesus Christ came to be accused, battered, tried, crucified, crushed. This you believe if you're saved. But believing those facts doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're saved. You can believe those facts right into hell. So stay with me this morning. Because there's hope. That's what the gospel is. It's hope. It's good news. God the Father sent the Son for the express purpose of becoming the ultimate sacrificial lamb of God. Bottom line, Jesus came to die. He fulfilled the demands of the Father. He appeased the wrath of the Father. And then Jesus, on his own accord, beloved, surrendered his life over to death. Death did not take Jesus. Jesus gave himself to death. He yielded up his spirit. You can't kill God, in other words, amen? Jesus said, I have the power to lay my life down and the power to take it up again. And if Jesus did not have the power to do either, lie it down or take it up, we wouldn't be here. There'd be no reason to meet. And if you are saved, you believe that the historical Jesus, who is the one who spoke all things into existence, if you are a believer, you believe that. If you're saved, you believe that Jesus spoke the universe into existence and the one who spoke it into existence in time entered that creation as a man. But no less than God at the same time. Fully God, fully man. For the purpose, beloved, of redeeming fallen men, sinners, back into a rightful relationship with his Father. And if you're saved, you believe that. You believe he came to lay his life down. You believe that he came and he raised it up again. However, simply believing those facts does not mean that you're saved. It doesn't guarantee that you're saved because you believe those facts. So a question for you this morning, beloved. How do you refer to God? Is God distant? Do you speak to him as the big man upstairs? Do you speak of God as God who's so far off? Or do you refer to him as my God? My Lord and my God. 
What we witness here this morning is the third resurrection appearance of our Lord. In his first resurrection appearance, he showed himself faithful. That was his purpose in the first resurrection appearance, was to show himself faithful and to inform his disciples through Mary that their relationship to him and his relationship to them was changing. They would no longer have daily relationships with him to where they could see him, touch him, and listen to him like this, as we are together right now. They would have to learn to live by faith. And he would equip them in in that and prepare them for that over those 40 days following the resurrection. Secondly, he comes and appears to those disciples of his in the upper room for the purpose of giving them the great commission. Now, as we studied, there wasn't just one great commission account. There's one great commission account in each of the four gospels and one in Acts. And there's specific details to each account, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. But he came to send his own in the second appearance. He told them that they would continue the ministry for which he had begun here on earth. And then thirdly, he comes now to secure the faithless. In his third appearance, he shows himself to secure the faithless. And that's our dear brother Thomas. And if you're here this morning as a true child of God and you feel faithless and you've been living as a faithless saint, I trust that the Holy Spirit will edify you. He'll build you up in the faith this morning. And that's the hope. And if you're here and you have no faith, in other words, you have a, uh, you do not have saving faith, I trust that the Holy Spirit will birth life into you this morning and that you, by His grace, will be born again today. Amen. Now, Thomas, here's Thomas. We all know him as old doubting Thomas, right? Thomas is known as the the, the proverbial pessimist, although he's much more than that in the negative, as we shall see this morning in this account. The guy doesn't believe anything. He thinks the worst is going to happen all the time. If you remember once in John 11, Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. He says this to his disciples. The disciples said, Lord... If you go to Jerusalem, you'll die. They want you dead. What does Thomas say? Thomas says, well, let's all go and die then. (laughs) He always perceives the worst, but he is courageous nonetheless. That's right. He's courageous. In John 14, Jesus said, I'm going away. He says this to the to the uh, disciples, the eleven. I'm going to go away and I'm going to come and bring you to myself. And Thomas replies, we don't know where you're going, and we, haven't ha- we don't have any idea how to get there, Lord. So with Thomas, everything is a disaster waiting to happen. He does not have solid faith. He's a very skeptical guy. And so we come to Thomas, and notice here that it's the Lord. Okay, the focus isn't Thomas. The focus isn't on the man. The focus isn't faithlessness. The focus here is the Lord who meets him at the point of his faithlessness. It's always to Christ. As kids, we hear stories about, you know, David and Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den. Those stories aren't about Daniel and they're not about Samson and they're not about these other heroes of the faith. It's about the Christ that they serve. 
ultimately. And that's where we have to take the kids, back to Christ. Through the lives of these saints. Sinners saved by grace. So here is the Lord to meet him at the point of faithlessness. And that's how the Lord is. Because the Lord, beloved, never forsakes his own. He will not forsake you if you are his. One of the greatest verses in the Bible. They're all great, but you know what I mean. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, like Thomas, if we are faithless, he remains what, beloved? Faithful. For he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. He will not deny himself. So, even when your faith as a truly saved believer runs dry, you're out, okay, the faith gauge is on E. It's in the red. The yellow lights come on. Right? Do you ever hear that? And you go, just got to remember to get gas on the way home. Have you heard that? And then two days later, you're calling AAA. Okay? The faith gauge is there. Who is it that meets you at the point of this weakness in order to lift you up again? Is it you and your brilliance stirring up your faith to get it back in place? No, if you're his, he comes to you. He may chasten you because of your faithlessness, but nevertheless, he comes because you're his. He will not deny his own. So here's Thomas, one of the 11, who should have known better. No doubt about it. So I want you to see three points as outlined for you in the bulletin that will hold our attention this morning. Thomas's descent into unbelief, the Lord's remedy of unbelief, and then the glorious blessings of God in believing. Look at the descent into unbelief. Verse 24, but Thomas was not, one of the 12, called Denimus, was not with them when Jesus came. So, but, but meaning that he was not there on the night that the Lord appeared in the upper room to give the first call of the great commission to those that are his. You will carry out my ministry. You will continue that which I have begun here on earth. So it's, it's Thomas called Didymus. This is both his Aramaic name, Thomas, and in the Greek equivalent, um, Didymus, both mean twin. So he's a twin, but we have no idea who his twin was. Don't know if it was a sister, if it was a brother. And technically, he's referred to as one of the twelve. Yes, Judas is in hell at this point. So there is only 11, but technically they're referred to as the 12. It would be like if I had, uh, if I met with uh, three out of the six elders or whatever, and I said that I met with the elders, you might think it's all the elders, but even though it was only three of them, you referred to them technically as the elders. So Thomas here is technically one of the original 12, called by Jesus to himself in his Galilean and Judean and Sumerian ministry. Now, he wasn't with the ten who were present when Jesus came to them. So, the disciples, those who were there, said to him, verse 25, the other disciples were saying to him, meaning they kept saying to him, we have seen the Lord. 
I mean, all week. One week, we've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. He appeared to us. Thomas, He appeared to us. We have seen the Lord. Jesus resurrected from the dead. But, He said to them, Unless I see in His hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into His side, I will not believe. That's how you need to read that. You know, some say that Thomas spoke for the whole world. You know, give me proof and I'll believe. But the world's view is more like, you know, show me the facts and I'll invent another theory. To get Jesus out of my mind convicting me. Because I hate him. The world hates Jesus Christ, beloved. Before I was saved, I hated Christ. Before you were saved, you hated Christ. Because you were dead in your sins and trespasses. He came to you. You came to him because he came to get you. That's why. Kent Hughes writes, quote, The difficulties of belief may be great for some, but the absurdities of unbelief are even greater. The liabilities, I might add, are also far greater. For those who reject a resurrected Christ will never rise to eternal life with him, but will rather spend an eternity separated from him because of their delusion. End quote. Beloved, only to end up to suffer the terrors of hell, the depth of darkness, ultimate loneliness, facing God's wrath forever and ever. The tormentor of hell is not Satan, it's God himself. It's his wrath unleashed. That's the payment for rejecting Jesus Christ, friends. Because on the cross, those who are saved, Jesus himself bore the unmitigated wrath of the Father on our behalf as though he sinned the sin of every single one of us. That's the great exchange. Is he your Lord? Is he your God? Does he know you? Thomas's unbelief is characterized by two very bad traits. Number one, defiance. Notice, I refuse. I refuse to believe. In other words, I will not. I refuse to believe. That's defiance. Followed by arrogance. Dictating. He's dictating the demands of what the Lord must do in order to satisfy him. Unless I see in his hands and put my finger into the place of the nails, I will not believe. Defiance. Arrogance. Many people are not unlike this brother to this very day. I will believe on Christ if, if he does this, that, and or the other, then I'll believe. Then I'll follow him. I'll become a Christian if, and here are my demands. It doesn't work that way. Never has, never will. Arrogant human pride attempts to hold God hostage while he fulfills their every little demand. 
don't work that way. Thomas was a Jew who knew the word of God. The scriptures that declared the resurrection of the Messiah. He walked with Jesus for three years. And Jesus, the Logos, the word himself, never spoke about his death without following it up with the promise of his resurrection. All the while, at this point, he's surrounded by those that love him. And he no doubt, no doubt loves in return. Who, who actually saw Jesus. They're describing him in all that he said to them and he refuses to believe the testimony of God's own people. Now, there's no doubt that Thomas was emotionally drained by the events of the past week. And he was unwilling to subject himself to any further pain. It's only human of him. We've all been there, amen? You get beat down and tattered down and let down and lied to and deceived or, or, or people turn on you. That's really bad when people turn on you. I was talking, I was at a conference yesterday with some of the leaders here on Friday night. I was talking to someone who's close, very, very close to John MacArthur and we were talking about those who turn on their pastor, those who turn on leadership and how vicious it can be. So here now, Thomas withdraws and hides behind the wall of empiricism here. He says, in effect, I refuse to believe your account. I need proof, and the proof must be laid out and come to me just like this. This is why, beloved... It is essential for church members to gather together and not to neglect the fellowship of one another. Very important. That's all I've heard for the last 48 hours. Solitude here only feeds discouragement. And from there it grows into self-pity. Very bad place to be. That's even more destructive. So those Christians who naturally have a gloomy temperament. And that some of us just do, amen? Some of us are just like Thomas. If you ever look at the lives of the apostles, they're all different. Very different personalities. And that really represents all of us, does it not? You got guys who shoot from the hip, like Peter. Ready, shoot, aim, guys like that. Right? He's known as the... Uh, uh, um, uh, what is it about him? He's known as the, the apostle with the, the, the foot-shaped mouth. Peter, right? Bold, you know, courageous, authoritative. But, you know, he tramples over people at the same time. And then you have this brother, gloomy temperament. And people with a gloomy temper, temperament have a tendency to isolate themselves. These are the last people that should be left alone. If you know people like that, see, party, part of membership, beloved, is looking out for one another. You do. That's why it's important to fellowship. That's why it's important to be involved. And that's where church discipline begins from the pulpit, just preaching and conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's step one. Step one of discipline is right here in the heart. No one else knows about it but you and the Holy Spirit. And the next level is one-on-one -on -one type of uh, instruction, encouragement, or... Um, 
harsh discipline sometimes. And then it's two or three, and if that doesn't work and someone's not repented, we bring it before the body. And if that doesn't work, we cast them out. And if that doesn't work and they don't repent, you treat them as an unbeliever. Gloom and despair begin to prey on these who isolate themselves like a hungry beast that's never satisfied. And then their condition causes them to focus upon themselves. They're filled with misery. They become even gloomier and less believing. The longer they remain isolated, the less they believe in the truth of the promises of Almighty God. They become embittered towards God's people. They'll become embittered towards leadership especially. But the reality is that they're really, truly bitter towards who? God. The Lord himself. So Thomas is a very good warning for all of us not to miss out on meeting with God's people on the Lord's Day, beloved. Very important. Church membership, discipleship, and discipline are all interlinked. And this is what they equal. Committed love. Committed love. Where there is mutual accountability that defines the obedience of Christian love. Mutual accountability that defines the obedience of Christian love while displaying the glory of Christian life, of Christian love to the world, you see. They will know you by the love you have for who? One another. You have to be engaged. So be careful, beloved. Speak to the Christians first. Be careful that you don't descend into unbelief, neglecting the fellowship, doubting and even denying the promises of God in the midst of your trials, troubles, and tribulations. Where you begin to dictate demands upon God. Okay, God, I am miserable in this condition. If you do this, this, and this, then I will, and then fill in the blank. Don't happen that way. You don't want to be there. So there then is the descent into unbelief for our brother Thomas. And notice now the remedy for unbelief. Now what we're going to see here is Thomas didn't need all the proof that he thought he needed, did he? Notice verse 26. After eight days, that's one week later, in Hebrew thinking, you count today's Sunday. If we're going to meet here eight days later in Hebrew thinking, we'll meet back here on Sunday because you count today. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It ends you up on Sunday the next week. And that's where they are again. Jesus appeared to them the second time, first to Mary and then to the group in the upper room on Sunday evening, late afternoon. Eight days later, Sunday again. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. You see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, you need his peace. Be a frightening thing to experience. It's frightening enough for the saints of Scripture to see angels. Right? Let alone the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, peace. (laughs) In the gospel, or the epistles, the writers, the authors of the epistles, what do they write? Grace and peace. You have no peace without the grace of God, beloved. To have peace of God, you have to have peace with God. And to have peace with God, you have to be provided the grace of God. 
so that the wrath of God is lifted from you and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is then placed upon your account by faith alone. That's the gospel. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger. See my hands? Reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. All of these in the Greek language, beloved, are commands, by the way. Every demand that Thomas made is countered with a command of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very interesting. So ultimately, this is condescension, the, the condescension of mercy on the part of God. The one who stooped, beloved, the one who stooped to enter the lower parts of the earth, to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, to step out of glory in order to become a human being who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's who's standing before him. So here then, the one who washed their dirty, filthy feet in the upper room just days prior to this, laid down his life for them in order to secure their salvation. That's what he did for you. He came to secure your salvation. God bless you. And now he condescends once again in order to correct his disciple Thomas, to correct his defiant unbelief and his arrogant demands. Firmly, no doubt, but mercifully nonetheless. Amen? He's so merciful. He's telling the man, every morning I wake up, now I know I, I am saved by grace. I know my name is written in the Lamb's book of life because of the grace of God, but I wake up and go, man, wretched sinner that I am. Wicked man that I am. Oh, but by the grace of God. And by the time I turn, my body, which is, I'm discovering new pains in it almost every morning, at 45 years old, I turn my body and put my feet on the ground and I say, Jesus, thank you for your salvation. Wretch, yes. Saint, yes. But by the grace of God. So he says to his beloved disciple, do not be unbelieving, but believing. This literally, literally, literally reads as follows. Stop becoming an unbeliever. Thomas, stop becoming an unbeliever. Thomas answers is only a true believer can, beloved. What? My Lord and my God. Now, the response to Jesus to this incredible statement is quite amazing. In that, first and foremost, he doesn't rebuke Thomas for such a declarative confession. My Lord and my God, which describes for us one of two things. Because Jesus didn't stop Thomas at this point. Either Jesus is a megalomaniac of the highest degree, or... He is exactly who he claims to be. Save that text for your Jehovah's Witness buddies. 
If you had the opportunity to listen to your all-time favorite, favorite, favorite Bible teacher from any time throughout history, Bunyan, Spurgeon, Owen, Whitfield, fill in the blank. Let's just say uh, the Apostle Paul. Let's just say he somehow, some way, by the miracle of God enters into your home and you know without doubt by the grace of God it's a manifestation of Paul in your room. <laughs> we all love Paul, yeah? And because you love him so much and you knew all that he stood for and all that he did by the power and the grace of God, you fall at his feet to worship him. (laughs) Overwhelmed by the presence of a holy man of God. He would be bound to say to you, don't you dare ever do that again. John the Apostle, same author of this book who penned Revelation, the response of the angel who declared in Revelation 19.9, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. As he said this to John, these are true words of God. Then John said, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. We see the same thing in Revelation 22. I mean, this is how a holy angel of God responds to inappropriate worship of creature to creature. Angels are creatures of God. Human beings, creatures of God. Angels, not fallen. Heavenly angels. Humans fallen. Do not do that. But there's no reproach, there's no repudiation here from Jesus to Thomas when he says, my Lord and my God. Why? Because that's exactly who he is. This is the message of the Christian gospel. Jesus Christ is eternal Lord in God, in human flesh, resurrected, from the grave, who still bears the marks of your redemption and always will if you're saved. So the remedy of Thomas's unbelief here, it was not Thomas rethinking things. Can we, are we clear on that? It's not Thomas going, whoo, boy, was I wrong. Let me stir up, let me build the faith up again. No! The remedy of Thomas's unbelief was the Lord Jesus Christ himself coming to his desperate need. But Thomas didn't know he was desperately in need. Now, next question. How did the Lord cure his unbelief? And here we, we move on now to the blessings of believing. Verse 29. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Now, it was no doubt the physical sight of Jesus that convinced Thomas, just like the others. The only reason they believed is because they saw the risen Lord. And they had to see the risen Lord. So what made the difference for Thomas? First of all, it was the sight of the resurrected Christ. The physical sight of Jesus Christ. Now, notice we we do not read that 
Thomas actually touched the hands or the side of Jesus as he demanded he must. Right? As a matter of fact, we read in verse 29, Jesus said, because you have what? Seen me. Because you've seen me. Have you believed? Secondly, was uh, the omniscience of Christ. The second remedy for his unbelief was the omniscience or the all-knowingness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how, you might ask, how is that possible? Well, question, was Jesus physically present when Thomas arrogantly said, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, unless I can put my finger there and my side here, I refuse to believe. No, he was not. So how was the resurrected Lord able to perfectly address Thomas according to his arrogant demands? How was Jesus able to answer each one of Thomas's unbelieving demands with commands, specific commands? Because he, God Almighty, sees, hears, and knows all things. This is a quality that is only true of God himself. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He is omnipresent, everywhere present. You remember at the very beginning of the Lord's um, earthly ministry, in John chapter 1, he's calling his disciples to himself. And they're beginning to recognize him, having followed John the Baptist around. And in John chapter 1 and verse 45, it says, Philip goes on and he finds Nathanael and he said to him, We found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Did not have a good reputation, that Nazareth. Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you, do you know me? That's really in there, by the way. <laughs> Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you contemplating the truth of the Messiah. I saw you contemplating the truth of my father. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Why? Because you are all-knowing. You're omniscient. Thirdly, what changes Thomas is the authority of the resurrected Christ. His authority. You see, when Almighty God speaks, his words are efficacious, brothers and sisters. They have an effect The reason that you are saved, and I'm speaking to believers here, the reason you are saved is because of the efficacious call of Jesus Christ upon your life. How many times did you reject the gospel before you surrendered your very life to Christ? Probably many. That's because you resisted the outward call of the gospel. But there came a day in God's perfect timing, that he called you from in here. And you couldn't resist. That's why you wanted him so badly. That's why you wanted to run to him. That's why you wanted to fall down before him and surrender your very life to him. Because he was calling you to himself. That is the effectual or efficacious call. You can't reject that call. Sorry. Nothing to apologize about. Who would want to? 
when it's his time and you're his, the call in your life is efficacious and he calls you to repent and come to him today. So that command, by virtue of him who speaks, brings into existence the very thing that's demanded. He's the sovereign. He's the almighty one. Therefore, Thomas says in response, there's only one place to go, beloved. Not, hmm, can you stick your hand out there a minute? No, one response, my Lord and my God. That's all there is to it. So, should we then presume that those who stand as unbelievers today, that they have the right to hold Jesus hostage to their demands, as Thomas thought he could do? That they can set demands for Jesus to meet in order to fit their fancy and satisfy their woes before they bow in humble submission to him? Do I have the right as a preacher to stand here and say to unbelievers, go ahead and put Jesus to the test. Go ahead. And see if he won't do for you what he did for Thomas. I've heard preachers say that. It's just ridiculous. Go ahead, put him to the test. Put Jesus to the test and see if he won't reveal himself for you. That's hogwash. He'll meet whatever test you throw out there at him. You know, you read about the fleece and judges, throw your fleece out, man. No. Do we, okay, that's as ridiculous as that is, okay? Now, to believers. Do we as believers have the right to place demands upon the Lord in the midst of our trials? I'm going through this. It's so difficult. I've never experienced anything so difficult in my life. I know, Lord, in the midst of this, I've been disobedient. I know I looked like and I act like an unbeliever. But I tell you what. I tell you what. Are are you listening? Right? If you do this for me, I promise that I'll do A, B, and C. No. It seems as though the point of the passage is to teach us the exact opposite. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Now, it's very important that we do not misread this text or read into that statement. This is not a statement of comparison, beloved. Many people look at this as a, sta- as a comparative statement. In that those who believe in me without seeing are more blessed than those who saw me and witnessed my resurrection appearance and believe. No. This is simply a statement of fact. That's all it is. See, what he's saying is this. See, Thomas, what you have witnessed, which is the manifestation of my glory, it's not the norm, Thomas. It's not the norm. What they witnessed eight days ago is not the norm. What the 500 will witness prior to my ascension, 1 Corinthians, it's not the norm. This is a unique moment in this time, this event within redemptive history. It's very unique, Thomas. You being one of my 12s, very unique. I mean, think about it. Think about the Old Testament believers. Those in Hebrews 11. 
they did not have the privilege of witnessing the incarnation of, let alone the glory of the Son of God. Why are they in heaven? Because of the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, whom they looked forward to by faith. According to God's grace, they believed. It's not going to be the norm for anyone after the ascension. Just a very few select people would see and believe. But many will not see and believe. And ooh, they're going to be so greatly blessed. But no more blessed than those who saw him and believed. We share the same blessings that we'll see in a moment. Because there'll be many afterwards who will not see and believe. The only other recorded person to see the resurrected Christ after his ascension is Paul. That's it. That is it, beloved. But what do they have to believe? Believe what? It's this, that Jesus is both Lord and God, the one who rose again from the dead, the one who came to die. That's why he came. So such people, these Old Testament saints, not unlike you, have never seen, but you believe. And you're greatly blessed, therefore. Right? Can you boast in that belief? Can anyone boast that you believe, having not seen? Anybody? No. No one, I hope, would have the guts to do that. Nothing. It's grace. It's the grace of God. So if Jesus says here, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe, what blessing is he talking about? I mean, this is really the last beatitude of the Lord. Blessed are those who... Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. This is the last Beatitude before the Lord ascends, but he doesn't specify what the blessing is. Hmm. He doesn't specify, but we can conclude what it is right here. And it's all defined for us right here in John's Gospel. And it begins back in John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. There we see that believers are blessed as adopted children of God. It's the blessing of adoption, number one. In John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So the believer in Christ, they are blessed here and that they are given life everlasting. Opposite of life everlasting is to suffer the second death. That's to be cast into the lake of fire where there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth for how long? Forever and ever and ever. No second chance. Ever. John 3.18 He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. So here we see that believers in Christ are, are, are blessed and that they are not condemned, nor will they ever be condemned for their sin. Why? Because Christ was condemned in your place. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So what do we see from that? The wrath of God abides on all those who are not in Christ. I don't care how much of a little goody two-shoes they are. The wrath of God abides on them. But for the believer, because of belief in Christ, the wrath of God no longer abides on them. That's another blessing. Blessed are you, beloved, in Christ. John 6.35 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Well, I was thirsty after the basketball game, and there was no water on. He's not talking about that kind of thirst, beloved. What he's talking about here is that believers in Christ will always, always, always be spiritually satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And then finally, John 6.40, For this is the will of, of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. The blessing for belief is that you will be raised up bodily on the last day. Well, let's say I die this afternoon. Well, what happens? Well, your body goes into the grave during your funeral. Your spirit, the moment you die, goes immediately to be with the Lord. Just like that. Quicker than this. And that's quick. Quick. Quicker than that. And when Christ returns and there's a physical resurrection, there'll be a physical resurrection of the just and the unjust. Upon that resurrection, your spirit will be brought back with your body and you'll have a body with no more scars and no more mars and no more overweightness and whatever, but a perfect body, a glorified body, fit to be with our eternal king forever. That's what you're blessed with. And we know in John twenty seventeen that God becomes our father and Jesus our elder brother because we're adopted heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ. So belief brings blessing and both blessings and belief come from who? From God in Christ alone. In Christ alone. That's why we sing in Christ alone. So how then do unbelievers come to believe that Jesus is resurrected in order to receive these very blessings? How do believers keep on believing in the promises of God in the midst of trouble? Well, it's by this. God has so graciously ordained an instrument for, he, for which he brings the most stringent unbelievers to faith. While he brings the weakest believers, or I should say keeps the weakest believers in the faith. If you're a weak believer, you've been bought with a great price. Though your faith is weak because the work he began in you back here, he promises to what? To continue the work to the end. See, it's, that's his work. That's why membership and being part of this is so important. To remind you of what? These things. To remind one another of these things, of these glorious Proves that it's in Christ alone. It's the word of God. Spoken, preached, shared. His own written word. So this must be preached. This must be heard. This must be heralded from the rooftops. For if they're not enabled to believe this, beloved... If, if people don't come to faith to believe in the resurrected Christ by way of the word of God, there's no sign in the world that will bring them to faith. Even if someone knocked on their door, like Paul, even if someone knocked on their door who'd been raised from the dead, they would not believe. They're not going to believe by way of signs. No way. Turn, if you will, to Luke 16. I'll show you what I mean. Now, Jesus said, verse 19, there was a rich man and 
he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away to the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Notice hell doesn't change anyone's disposition there. Still utterly selfish. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able. That shows us that hell is permanent. And that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that they may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the word of God. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. There's people who sit in churches their whole life, beloved, who hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They die and they go to hell. No one needs their own personal visible resurrection experience. Scores of people witness signs and the miracles and wonders of Jesus. And as I said, they're in hell. In John chapter 6, during the Galilean ministry of Jesus, Jesus said to the Galilean followers, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, which would lead to belief, by the way, in the sign maker, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. What Jesus meant there was that although they had witnessed the miracles, they did not recognize or understand the quality of those signs that they belonged to God himself and that Jesus was God himself. It was to point them to their spiritual Messiah, to the Lord and to God Almighty, and they missed him. Their concern was with getting what the signs provided, you see. Gimme, 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 gimme. They had health care, full stomachs. Jesus was healing everyone throughout Galilee. He was multiplying fish and bread. And he said, look, he uses this word filled here. That word filled, it refers to a kind of eating that animals do. That's all they do all day is they eat hay. It's fodder, just like fodder filled, like a big old fat cow. You seek me because you ate of the loaves and were foddered up like a cow. So signs alone will not be the cause of people coming to believe in a resurrected Christ. Seeing the resurrected Christ himself won't do it. Seeing someone raised from the dead for this rich man's lost relatives won't do it. So notice then Jesus how John ends the chapter, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs 
Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. Why? So that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ. Who's He? He's the Son of God. What if I believe? That you may have life in His name. My Lord and my God. Or you will be lost forever. Just knowing about Him. Well, how will they believe if they don't experience their own resurrection appearance of Jesus or some other sign miracle? that will validate his lordship in their lives and their arrogant unbelief. What will do it? They can only believe by way of the book. That's why we teach the Bible here, beloved. Amen? No short films, no clips, no entertainment sessions, no stand-up comedy. It's the heralded truth of the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. By the work of the Holy Spirit. So we must embrace this truth. And if you're an unbeliever here today, you must embrace this truth. You must repent of your sin. You must fall at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritually submit and surrender your very life to Him right now. And those of you who are in Christ, we must embrace the truth, the heralded truth of the Word of God, so that we can stand in faith according to the Word of God. Amen? Because the opposite is also true. If you set aside the Bible, if you neglect the authority of the Bible, if you set aside the Bible as as irrelevant to your own personal life, in other words, you blow off the dust on Sunday or not even bring it on Sunday because it's been on the shelf all week and you're not letting the Word of God test your thinking and test your actions and your motives... There's no sign in the world that will get you to the place of having an increased faith in the substance of our faith, Jesus Christ. It comes by the word. That's why it is written. So, how might you have all those blessings we we looked at a moment ago? Verse 31. These have been written so that you may believe. It's Jesus Christ, the substance of our faith. So weak faith believers like Thomas, they don't become spiritual giants, they don't become heroes of the faith by self-generated faith any more than unbelievers come to faith by the way of signs. So the last two verses here are really a conclusion of the gospel and you'll see that John 21 is really a postscript of John's gospel. And he summarizes here its strategy the strategy of the gospel, the subject of the gospel, and the purpose of the gospel. John's strategy here is to use selected signs as we see through chapter 1 to chapter 12 and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a testimony that demonstrates the character, the power, the person, and this. And also to relate Jesus to human need. Okay, so the sign miracles of Jesus from chapter 1 through chapter 12 and then his resurrection is the strategy John uses in order to demonstrate the character of Christ, the power of Christ, and to relate Jesus to human need. Bottom line what? 
What did I say from John 109 messages ago? What did I say and throughout those 109 messages? The purpose of John's gospel is to declare the deity of Jesus Christ. That He's Lord and He is God. That's why He wrote this letter. So, the signs demonstrate Christ's nature and power. He's Lord and He is God. These are both titles of deity. So, I must ask you this. How do you speak of Jesus? How do you speak to Jesus? Is he distant? Is he one of many gods that you don't know much about? Is he, yeah, he's the way. I believe that intellectually. But that's all you know? Then I say this to you, beloved. I pray that the Holy Spirit this morning has moved in a way to bring you to the place to understand that he's your only hope and that he's changed your thinking, whatever the wrong thinking that you have adhered to all of these years to bring you to the place to where you can fall at at his feet upon your knees and say, my Lord and my God, to be saved. You must repent. And you must come to him by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says that we walk by faith and not by sight. And for you believers, do you speak to God like this? Unless I see what I want to see, unless you do what I need you to do, I won't believe. I've believed up to this point, but I've been let down. If that's you, beloved, humbly repent. Please, humbly repent. And perhaps he has you here today to be chastened gently, gently, by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of his word. And I hope that you too will say this very afternoon, this is the God I serve and he is my Lord and my God. And then we can say that corporately together, brothers and sisters. And that's why we sing. So let's stand and let's prepare our hearts to sing before the Lord because of all that he's accomplished on our behalf. And may the Lord bless you greatly as you grow, beloved, in the grace and knowledge of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord God, I thank you and I praise you for your tender touch in our lives. I thank you for radically entering into our lives and transforming us. I thank you for granting us the faith to believe, the eyes to see, and the ears to hear the proclaimed gospel message. And Lord, bless your dear people, all of us who at times fall into the the same despair that Thomas did in doubting and arrogantly demanding from you. Lord, may we be humble servants, recipients of your service to us, through the ministerial work of the Holy Spirit, through the teaching of your illuminated word into our hearts to continually change our minds and conform our very persons to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, who we will one day see 
face to face. But until that time, may we run this race with endurance, the race that is set before us in humility, looking always at the author and finisher of our faith, our Lord, our God, our Savior, our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Bless your dear people today, I pray. And may new life, Lord, be birthed into those who walked in unbelieving today, that they would understand that their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before you ever spoke the world into existence. Bless them, keep them, hold them, protect them. In spirit and truth, for your glory we pray. Amen.